Scott. <laughs> Scott just said to me, wait till you see how pretty my blue shirt, his blue shirt looks. You're right. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm really, I'm kind of rocking it here, don't it's you think? It's kind of funny because it's kind of a muted navy in person, but it is like bright. It is looking good. Like Caribbean blue. Yeah. Or Caribbean blue, whatever. Whatever, but, wherever you're from. I don't yes. know who says, I think both ways are kind of correct, depending on kind of like yeah. where you're from. So, hey there, everybody. It's Monday afternoon again, Hi. 3 o'clock. That means it's time for Isaiah. And um, we are already up to like the 56th yeah, that's chapter. Second muted. That's okay that it says that second muted. Um, no, it, it's not muted. Okay. The second one is fine. Okay. The green bar. You just want to see the green bar. Okay. So I think they can hear I us. I just wanted to be sure in like a few yeah. seconds we were going to hear. Yeah. Where are you? We can see you, but we can't hear you. Because <laughs> so. we've done that before, haven't we? On a couple occasions. Only a couple? Only a couple. Over the last however, you know, many years I will years tell you though, now. in two plus years that we've been doing it home from here, we have had less difficulties than trying to bring this class live on Tuesday <laughs> at church. I don't understand that. Because we are technically really on top of we our are. game. We are. We are. We got that $10 microphone and everything. <laughs> yep. So anyway, we're glad y'all are here today. Yes, we are. Um, and we are at Isaiah 56, which is, you know, kind of another change point in Isaiah. And there's only 66, I think, chapters in Isaiah. So, wow. So, yeah. So, we're going to have to be thinking of what comes after this. I guess we will. We always I mean, do. What follows Isaiah? I don't know. I don't wow. know. We'll wow. come up with something, though, won't we, honey? We will. We'll work on that. If you ha all have any ideas, really, <laughs> Old Testament, New Testament, yeah. what, what would you guys like to study so, um, after this? P really, please send. You know, Scott may look back and say, well, wow, I haven't done that maybe for we'll 10 years that. or seven or years. Or... Maybe we won't. <laughs> you know, but we sure could use help, couldn't we? Always, always, always. always. Really. Wow, okay, so. Like beginning... this whole study, this came from Rich Morgan yeah. suggesting it. And Rich was so excited that and he you was did very that. persistent. He was, but he's such a nice person. He did it in a very, very nice, nice way. way. I kept putting him off saying, I don't think I can do it. And it's worked out okay yes, so far. It has. I think it's been it's certainly been helpful to me. It's been helpful think, to me, too. You know, so. All righty. Okay, friends. So I think that's going to open us up with prayer. Please do Why that. Why not? Yeah. We can get going. Okay. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. As we are every Monday afternoon, and we are grateful to take this time out of our week to study your word in a way that we probably wouldn't elsewhere. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would open up these pages of Isaiah for us. Help us to hear the prophet well um, so that we can indeed um, come to understand who you are better, to understand our place in this world better, understand better your, your plan for rescuing us and the entire world. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, Patty. Out of here, honey. Very good. So we are starting Isaiah 56. 56. Yeah. Because where we have been is basically, we, we had the Suffering Servant song, which we did a couple of weeks ago. And then we had this section that was sort of built around this covenant of peace that followed the Suffering Servant section. And I want to go back to that Isaiah 53 for a minute. If you want to look at that, that's great. Because um, 
uh, a church member came up to me yesterday and said that he act, he is going to a study like on Sunday mornings with a rabbi as part of a group and they're studying Torah and stuff. And so the rabbi was asked by somebody in the class about Isaiah and particularly passages like the suffering servant, these messianic passages. And they asked the rabbi, um, well, we know that Christians see Jesus in this, but who do Jews see in this? Who did the Jews see in this passage? And his answer was, the rabbi's answer was that the um, suffering servant for the Jews is the people of Israel. And it was in the first century AD, and it is today. And that's the way they read it, that's the way they see it. Um, and so the rabbi, in my view, got it exactly right. And the exactly what we talked about a couple weeks ago when we were doing the suffering servant. But Jesus, this Jew, right? He's completely Jewish from Galilee, finds his vocation in something like Isaiah 53. That God leads Jesus to grasp that his mission with the Jews and really with humanity is to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And so the suffering servant um, poem of Isaiah 53 becomes like this mini resume for Jesus. And he does suffer for the sake of his fellow Jews and for the sake and for the sake of the world. And I always thought that was a really um, wonderful way to think about how Jesus would have come to understand the vocation that that God had given him okay what he was supposed to do in life and that he would be the personification of of the people of Israel so anyway that's it I just thought to pass that along because I thought that was right on right 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 with us there or for where we are here in Isaiah. So in 56 there's kind of a kind of a natural break between 55 and 56. Um, because we're not now we're turning away from the suffering servant and the consequent covenant of peace and now we're turning turning to a section that is about um, for whom is God's salvation? It is about God's condemnation of the leaders of Israel who lead the people away from God rather than toward God. Um, and so I think we're just going to plunge in, but we're going to take some time just today to talk about one idea in particular. So we're just going to start at chapter 56, verse 1. And I'm going to get a swallow of water. This is what Yahweh says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Maintain justice and do what is right, for the salvation of God is close at hand, it's near, it's, it's these words, um, Jesus echoes these words 
in the first things he says in Mark's gospel, when he says, the kingdom of God is at hand, right? The kingdom of God is close by. It's right here. It's right here. Repent and believe in the good news. And God says his righteousness will soon be revealed. And we could, we could spend time, I don't know if we will today, but Jesus is essentially the righteousness of God in the flesh. Jesus is the embodiment that God does what right does what is right, that God keeps God's promises. Because as we've talked about in recent weeks, there's a lot of promises made in some of these passages in Isaiah, which every Jew of Jesus' day really knew were still awaiting fulfillment. And so Jesus comes forward, and he is the fulfillment of those promises. Right? So, um... But I want to talk about justice. Look at that word right there in verse 1. Maintain justice. It is a word that people talk about a lot. I don't know that we really always get the right, the right understanding of justice. So I have a few um, thoughts on it. But before I do that, I have this slide I need to talk about. No class the next two Mondays. Patty and I are taking some vacay, some vacation. And so the next two Mondays, August 8th and 15th, we will not meet. We will be back together online Monday afternoon, August 22nd at 3 o'clock, picking up wherever we left off today. Is that clear, Patty? That is so clear. We're really only gone about eight or nine days. But, but it happens it, to catch. Yes, it's only it one weekend. Yes. But it happens to catch a couple of Mondays, Tuesdays. So there we go. All right. So everybody's just absorb that. I'll be sending it out in the Friday updates and reminding people on Sunday and the rest of it. But there we go. All right. So. There, for Aristotle. So we're, gonna, we're just going to leave the Bible for a little bit here. Because you see, the thing about humanity is that we are all made in the image of God. So... We can't be surprised if God's stuff starts showing up in human stuff, right? God made us all. God made us all in God's image. God is the God of everything. There's no part of the cosmos that isn't God's. God made it all and declared it all good. So we can't be shocked when we come across pieces from the so-called secular world, or however you want to think about it, that are helpful to understanding how God works in this world. And one of those ways, I think, is in Aristotle's virtues, his cardinal virtues, um, four cardinal virtues, justice, temperance, prudence, and <laughs> maybe wisdom. I should never try to remember lists of four anymore. But one of them is justice. So, so here's what Aristotle had to say about justice. And it'll get us into the biblical understanding, which is pretty much the same, to be honest. Justice is the whole of virtue, Aristotle wrote. The most excellent person, right? The person who best understands this and lives it out. In a, in a biblical context, we would say the most Christ-like person is the one whose virtue, whose Christ-likeness is perfected in relationship to others which is no surprise to us Christians because we know what the two great commandments are, right? To love God and to love others. So this, this emphasis on relationships 
that lies at the heart of justice is is absolutely absolutely coming from God. The most excellent person is the one whose virtue is perfected in relationship to others, and justice is always expressed in relation to another person. So justice, hence, justice is an inherently social idea. It's about a symmetry of relations in the community. It doesn't mean that everybody has exactly the same thing because there are people born with different abilities and different desires and different levels of ambition and all of that. And it's not, it's not just if, if all of that is seemingly washed away, but it kind of under, under, underlies why we have due process and law, right? So in, a, in America, um, the scales of justice are supposed to be blind. So that even, whether you're Jeff Be Bezos Bezos, whatever his name is, a rich Amazon guy, or some poor person from, you know, Texas, you're supposed to be treated exactly the same by the law. Now, in practice, does it work out that way? No, but it is unjust when it doesn't. Because true justice would treat both in exactly the same way. It doesn't mean they're going to get to the same outcome. But they are both entitled to that due process under the law because that's how we strive to maintain this symmetry of relations. So look at the bottom of the slide. This I remember I, I, I dropped this once in on a worship series meeting. We were talking about this and I, I said, well, you know, social justice is a redundancy. All justice is social. It's, it's, there is no justice that isn't social, so there's no need to put the word social in front of it. All justice is social. All justice is about our relations with others and among others and ourselves with others. That's what it means. That's what it has meant for Aristotle. That's what it means in the Bible. So this, this is a Catholic theologian who wrote that justice is simply the habit of acting in a manner that nourishes right relations with others. In that way, you can see the connection between justice and love, right? What does it mean to love? people. Well, put it into practice, it means cultivating the habit of acting in a manner that nourishes right relations with others. For these relations are essential to our identities and essential to living a good life because we are inherently relational people. As God is inherently relational, we're not relational in the way that God is relational, but, but we are made, created to, to, to love others. So, in the Law of Moses, I don't think we'll, we'll take the time to go to it. If you want to write down Exodus 23, 1-9, you can. It's there in the very beginning of the law. There are these laws about settling and managing relationships among people. What do they do if somebody does something they shouldn't do to somebody else? How does it get settled and the rest of it? it I think it's from this section that my favorite example comes from. That if you find your enemy's stock, oxen, donkey, whatever, tied to a tree, you take it to them. Your enemies. Because justice doesn't differentiate between your buddies and your enemies. Right? If it did, well, it would be easy. But justice doesn't differentiate. Just the way love doesn't differentiate. Jesus said, 
Ah, anybody can love their family, their friends, but you have to love you love your enemies, and come to understand what that what that means. So here's this famous line from the prophet Amos, eight fifty B.C. or so: "Let justice roll down like waters." like streaming waters rolling over the people of Israel and the land of Israel. Justice, this, this essential rightness in the relationships among people um, in the community. So I guess what I'd like you just to just, just kind of kind of remember that when you're reading your Bible and you come across the word justice, that it is about, it's a relationship word really, I think at its heart, it is at its heart. And, and justice in the community is about this symmetry of um, right relationships. I want to use the word equitable relationships, but the word equitable is getting hijacked like so many words are today. It, it, it doesn't mean all outcomes have to be the same because they're not going to be the same. And if you try to force them to be the same, you're going to end up, um, you know, in, in some sort of what? Some sort of Stalinist dystopia. So, back to Isaiah 56, verse 1. Maintain justice, God says. Do what is right. And in Hebrew poetry, such as this is, those are really two ways of saying the same thing. Remember, Hebrews, don't, they didn't really rhyme words. They rhymed ideas. So, so most of the time, the second line reinforces the thought, and the first line just says it differently. Sometimes the poetry will flip the second line. So this, by, for, the second line will be the opposite of the first line. But the thoughts are usually almost always still related. And usually like this, where the, the maintain justice, do what is right, God says, for my salvation is close at hand. And I see Linda Waldo's that she's thought of Micah 6 8. Me too, with the exact same thing. Exactly. Line, Linda, we're right what there. does God want? God wants us to do justice. What does that mean? What does it mean to do justice? Because see, justice is a noun, right? So to do justice. Or to act justly. Or to act justly, you know, but I kind of like the do justice because it catches you off guard. To, to, to do justice is to work, actually work toward right relationships among the people in the community, whether it's your neighbors or your village or your town or your school or your church and um, I guess it's it shouldn't surprise us because when we talk about our salvation for eternity I think the best way to talk about that is the repairing the rectifying to rectify something means to put it right to the, the rectification of our relationship with God. You see? So, so justice is about um, rectifying ruptured relationships among one another. Uh, 
So, yeah. Thank you, Linda. So, any other thoughts? Patty, you have any thoughts? No, it's just so funny. I was just going to bring up the exact same verse from Micah because um, it just sounded so similar. Yeah. One of, one of Robert's favorite verses. Well, actually, it's a lot of people's it's favorite verses. It's your favorite verses. Bible verse also. I know that. Yeah, and, and it's one where you really got to, you really, you need the intro to it because in the intro to it, I mean, the, the Hebrews had a big system of priests and sacrifices and animals and all this other stuff. And in the intro to it, you know, God says, I don't want any of that. I don't want rivers of oil. I don't want you to sacrifice a thousand animals to me. I don't want you to sacrifice your firstborn to me, though that isn't what God wanted. Anyway, I don't want any of that stuff, God says. Here's what I want. For you to do, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. That's it. Push the rest of it away. And, and what happens is the rest of it becomes a thing of the past. And Jesus, it all just fades away. And um, the Jews got into trouble when they forgot what God really wanted from them. We all do. We all do. It was to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. Scott, how, do you know offhand how many years there were between Isaiah and Micah? Isaiah the prophet. Yes. The person, the man. Yes. The man. And Micah were basically contemporaries. Okay. About 700 years before Jesus. Okay. But... This section of Isaiah that we're in right now comes from a later time. Alrighty. Right? From a prophet sort of in the school of Isaiah, I think. Um, during the, the, the time of the exile. Because it's just, it's just very powerful. Um, if it's understood that way, rightly understood that way. So in verse 2 then, God says, Blessed is the one who does this. <laughs> not just thinks about it. Not just promises to. But blessed is the one who does this. The person who holds it fast. Who holds tightly. To what? The doing of justice. The doing of what is right. Who keeps a Sabbath without desecrating it. Who keeps their hands from doing any evil. You know, Protestants get so focused on making sure that we understand that we can't earn our salvation that they lose. it's so easy to lose sight of anything else. How we live matters. It matters to God. When we come to faith in Christ, and we are reborn, there are consequences of that. And the consequences are that we will lead a more Christ-like life. We will have something to show for it. We will behave differently in some ways. We will show the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> now and then, at least. Right? And, and it isn't saying that those that compassion and kindness and helpfulness and avoiding hands that are doing evil and stuff are about earning your salvation. They're not about earning your salvation. But they are the they are the 
consequence of the salvation that God gives us. And I think the I think the Bible is clear from beginning to end that if you believe that you have put your faith in Christ and that you have been saved and washed in the blood of the lambs, but you're exactly the same person as you were before. I think the Bible's clear. You, you, you need to ask yourself whether you've really put your faith in Christ or not. Because how could it be that a person could be reborn in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, and yet in every demonstrable way be the same person on the other side of that river? Protestants sometimes get all wookie about that, but we, we, we should not get all wookie about that. Paul says to the Ephesians, work out your own salvation. What does he mean? You have been saved, now act like it. And if you can't, if you won't, you probably need to go back to square one. I think that's true. Okay, verse 3. Now, this is really interesting. The Jews, okay, the Jews are very much apart from away from the world around them. They live in Jewish quarters. There were Jewish quarters in Alexandria. There were Jewish quarters in Rome. Um, they lived lives unto themselves. Why? Because they lived differently than other people did. They, they... Um, didn't work on Saturday. They their eating habits were different. They just you could go down the line of so many so many different pieces of the law that set them apart from the people from from Gentiles around them. So they they didn't mix. And as time went on, I mean, they wouldn't even eat with Gentiles. They viewed that as something that, that would defile them or make them unclean or something. And the more devout type Jew they were, the more they felt that way. And it's natural, I think, that if that is who you are as a people, and you have been exiled and oppressed and squeezed, remember the history of Israel is just after, after um, as the Babylonians get, the uh, Syrians get nearer and nearer, it's just being squeezed and shrunk, and the ten northern tribes are being swept away, and then Judah is just getting smaller and smaller and smaller until all that's left of the city. It would be easy for you to um, imagine that really, you know, God has no space for these Gentiles. No space at all. The blood of Abraham flows in your veins, not these Gentiles. So look what God says in verse 3. Let no foreigner who is bound to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely exclude me from his people. Wow. I mean, just standing alone, that's a remarkable sentence. There's not anything in here about this person, you know, uh, giving up pork. There's not anything in the line about, about being circumcised. There's, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord, in the way 
I hope that we are all bound to Jesus. Let no foreigners bound to Yahweh say, Oh, Yahweh will surely exclude me from his people. Dot, 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 because God won't. It is like the story that, you know, the story of Ruth is so helpful here in all of this because Ruth is not Jewish. She's the great-grandmother of the great King David. She's not Jewish. She's a Moabite. And she says to Naomi, what? You're going to be my God. Your people will be my people. Now, I'm sure that when she came back with Naomi, she adopted a lot of the Jewish practices about food laws and all that other stuff, whatever they were doing in Naomi's village at, at the time. But it isn't said explicitly. She doesn't say, oh, well, your law will be my law. I'm going to give up those BLTs now. No, nope. all she says is, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And so now God says, let no foreigner who is bound to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely exclude me from his people. So just imprint this in your mind. God wants people in. <laughs> God doesn't want to keep people out. It's not about how many people can we keep out of the body of Christ. That isn't God's purpose. I, 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 You know, I read a bunch of Christian stuff from all kinds of different places, everything from Twitter to Christianity Today to First Things, you know, trying to, you know, keep up with stuff. And... There's just too many Christians. You view themselves as the gatekeepers. We're going to make sure that only the right the right people get in. No. <laughs> You're ushers. You are ushers, not gatekeepers. Let no foreigner who is bound to Yahweh said, Yahweh will surely exclude me from his people because God won't. That's not the goal. Jesus said, go out to the ends of the earth, right? I think I had a slide. Wait, I do. Look, <laughs> this is a slide from my class on Sunday. Sure, the, you know, Jesus sent the apostles and other people who would become evangelists and they're going around the Roman Empire willy-nilly, preaching the word, proclaiming Christ. And um, uh, trying to get people in. The fact that they're, you know, most people don't want to, well, can't help that. But see, this person is saying, this, oh, Yahweh will surely exclude me. No. If you're bound to God, if you're one of God's, maybe I could put it that way, if you're one of God's, if you've committed yourself to God, if you've committed yourself to Yahweh, if you've committed yourself to Jesus, he's not going to exclude you. Look at the next line. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. Well, you remember a couple weeks ago we looked at the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, right, Patty? Yes. I think we did. We did. And I explained that eunuchs were men who had voluntarily been castrated so that they could work in the king's harems, in the king treasuries and stuff because people thought that if they didn't have some of the drives that typically consume other men, that they would be more trustworthy and not as liable to fall into being blackmailed and all. They wouldn't be having affairs and getting blackmailed as a way to get into the king's treasury and so forth. 
But eunuchs were, under the law, excluded from the from the temple, and because they were well, you see, because because it was a way of denying life, right? For I mean, God God doesn't create life by with a magic potion or a magic rod or God creates life in the system of reproduction that we have. Everything from trees to cats to people. And so eunuchs were only allowed to come so far into Judaism. And that would be an issue for the Ethiopian eunuch, right? So how far could he how far would he be allowed to go actually in his devotion to Yahweh? But now God says, let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. You got the dry tree part, yes. right, Patty? Okay. Right. I figured you would. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. Gosh, one, two, three. Just like do justice, love mercy, walk only with God. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Because the eunuchs will never have sons and daughters, you see. Right? So it is this amazing promise to these excluded people that takes verse 3, the beginning of verse 3, and ramps it up tenfold. Well, it's not only foreigners, it's eunuchs. And what is it all focused on? Is it focused on, on what? Keeping the Sabbath, choosing what pleases God, holding fast to the covenant. And what is the essence of that covenant? Deuteronomy 6.4, to love God, and Leviticus 19.18, to love your neighbor. That would all be made clear by Jesus, should have been clear enough long before. So those verses are just, are just remarkable, really, illustrating a lot about who God is and about how God works in this world. God is about inclusion, not exclusion. Verse 6. And foreigners who bind themselves to Yahweh to minister to him, to love the name of Yahweh and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. So it's gone from foreigners to eunuchs to all. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not focused on the Jews, right? These are foreigners, the eunuchs, and then to everyone. It's the, it's, again, we're seeing what? We're seeing the 
working out of the promise made to Abraham that all of the families of the earth would be blessed through him in Genesis 12.3. That's been God's project. It's God's project still that all the families would be blessed. To all who keep the Sabbath, who keep the covenant. See, God isn't saying, well, just anything goes. You can just whatever. You can just find your own way to the mountaintop. I don't know. There's a million ways to the mountaintop. They're all me. That isn't what God is saying. God isn't saying that at all. God is saying, but to those who love the name of the Lord, that makes it very specific, very particular. It's not just whatever idea of God a person has. Right? Because people have, well, everybody's going to have a different idea of God if that's what all it was produced to. It isn't about your idea of God. It is about the God who actually exists. The God who actually exists. And who has a name which is specific. I am Scott Lawrence Engel. God has a name which is specific and identifies who we're talking about here. Not Baal, not Asherah, not the the horror of Molech or any of those pagan gods and goddesses that don't even exist, and not Caesar. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Bind yourself to him. Love his name. Keep his Sabbaths. Keep the covenant. You see, put yourself into, ah, to go back to a right relationship with God. What does the right relationship with God look like for these Jews? Well, a right relationship with God is what? In addition to doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God, it's it's not desecrating the Sabbath. It's keeping the covenant. And God will bring them to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted upon my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's all peoples. To read it as like nation states that we have today, you know, the country of France and the country of the United States of America and the, 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 you know, the country of China and stuff. That isn't it. The nations means peoples. It means tribes. Verse 8, the sovereign Lord declares he who gathers the exiles of Israel, that's God, I, quote, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. It's just like, it's, it's like God says here, I'm just getting started. Hold on to your hat. I am just getting started. I've gathered some, I'm going to gather more. And guess what? You're going to be surprised by who it is. Right? So, so that was a lot of the arguments um, after Jesus' death and, re death and resurrection. Jews just couldn't, so many of them couldn't accept the fact that God was really going out and pulling in all these Gentiles. These hated, pork-eating Gentiles. That's why, that, that's why what Paul would get beaten up over. He would say, this, <laughs> this is God's work. Jesus, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God. This is God's work that we're about here, going out to these Gentiles. And, and if you read the book of Acts closely, you can see place after place 
where those things are worked out in the Christian community. Would the incoming Gentile men have to be circumcised or not? If it was good enough for Jesus, maybe it should be good enough for them. But no. Nope. All of that's a thing of the past. Things have changed in Jesus. We're going forward. The law was good. It served its purpose. It served its place. We're going forward, not back. So, okay. So that's that's the end of a little subunit there. Subunit. <laughs> you have anything else there, Patty? No, Scott, I don't. Okay. Now, God's got some accusations to make. And so it's important when God makes accusations that to understand who he has his sights on. And in this case, it is going to be the leaders of Israel. That's really a constant Old Testament theme. It goes back to the kings of Israel who, are, who were supposed to be good shepherds of God's people being instead terrible shepherds of God's people. Shepherds in the Mideast would lead sheep. The sheep would um, follow the shepherd's voice. It wasn't like in the movie Babe, right? Patty was Babe with the little pig. Um, yes, Bar Ram you. Bar <laughs> So in, in the movie, the you know the dogs would 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 chase the pigs, um, or the lambs or sheep in this case, uh, chase the sheep into where they wanted them to go. Patty and I saw a demonstration of that one time in I, yeah, Ireland, Ireland, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ireland. We had a thundering herd of sheep running right at us until the dogs did their thing. So, but. In the movie, to stick with this movie, that's on my brain right now, the little pig, Babe, speaks to the sheep very nicely, and the sheep follow Babe and do what Babe instructs. And that's kind of the Middle East picture of a shepherd. In the Middle East, a shepherd was someone who the sheep followed, and, and they would know the shepherd name and not not literally but they would recognize the shepherd's voice and they would follow the shepherd rather than being chased from behind so um the the leaders of israel the kings of israel were supposed to be good shepherds and they weren't which is what underlies in john's gospel um john 10 who is the good shepherd in john 10 jesus jesus is the good shepherd that's big christian imagery right there it is is it fresh and new and innovative in John 10? No, it's not. It goes all the way back to the prophets hundreds and hundreds of years before when God says, well, pff, you shepherds of Israel, you're, you're terrible. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. So God has some accusations to make against the leaders, as we'll, we'll see in a minute. So here, verse 9. Come, all you beasts of the field. Come and devour. Bring an appetite. All you beasts of the forest. Israel's watchmen. That's the key to who this is focused on. Who are, who are the watchmen of Israel? The, the, the leaders. They're the ones who should know where the people are to go. They should be leading the people toward God. 
but so often they lead the people away from God. Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They're all mute dogs. They can't bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. Dot, 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 like worthless dogs. You know, in our culture, we value dogs. Right? We sure do. Do, do all dogs go to heaven, Patty? Yes, they do. Darn right. For the <laughs> Jews, they would have said, what are, you, what are you smoking? No, of course not. They didn't value dogs. Dogs were, were, uh, dogs were a parasite. They were scavengers, and they were loud, and they served no useful purpose for anybody. So if you went back to Jesus' day, you're not going to find anybody hugging on their puppies. That may break your heart, but it's how it was. Verse 11, they, these wicked leaders, blind watchmen, they're, they're dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They just eat, eat, eat. Everybody else might be starving, and they're just eating away. Big feasts. They're shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. When whose way should they turn to? You got it. They seek their own gain when they should be looking after the people. What will benefit the people? How can they be a good shepherd? How can, how can they lead the people in God's ways? How can they make life better for these people? How can they ensure that the hungry are fed and the widows and orphans are really taken care of and all that kind of stuff, right? But they don't. Come, each one cries. Let me get wine. Let us drink our fill of beer. Aha! And tomorrow will be like today, or even better. It's party time. Honey, do I have too much fun reading scripture sometimes? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think you need to read it and try to try to try to understand what you're reading when you when you do that, but <laughs> Verse 57. The righteous perish. The righteous perish. Hmm. Chapter. Sorry. Chapter 57. The righteous perish. And no one takes it to heart. The devout are taken away. And no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. That's a profound thought, isn't it? Um... Those who walk uprightly, meaning in God's way, enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. Now, the Jews and later the Christians would have this developing understanding about a life after death and resurrection and, and so forth. And it's only, it's only in the beginning here but already it's saying something to us about the fact that um, that that death is not that death is not the end because you see peace is actually an active word peace is not an inactive word peace is an active word 
peace pe in, in 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 the making of war peace is more about laying down is is not merely the laying down of arms peace is something that you have to build undergirded by 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 justice justice is the road that brings you that brings you to peace that's why the you know there's the slogan you'll hear people chant you know um no justice no peace well they are they are linked but but really peace is peace is on the road to justice so i think i may have said that backward just a minute ago but yeah those who walk uprightly enter into peace they find rest as they lie in death but you you come here, your children, you children of a sorceress, you offspring of adulterers and prostitutes. These are still the leaders of Israel <laughs> that God is talking to. Who are you mocking? At whom do you sneer and tick out, stick out your tongue? Are you not a brood of rebels? The offspring of liars, you burn with lust among the oaks and under every spreading tree. You sacrifice your children in the ravines and under the overhanging crags. There were stories of even the Jews practicing human sacrifice in the time before the Babylonian exile. Yep. Chapter, verse 6. The idols among the smooth stones of the ravines are your portions. Indeed, they are your lot. Yes, to them, to these idols. You have poured out drink offerings and offered grain offerings. In view of all this, should I relent? So, God is accusing these leaders of being blind and lost in their idolatry. So, idolatry, yes, is certainly in the ancient world. Their idolatry was the making of these idols, it's where the word comes from, these figurines and other things that people would worship, these representations of various pagans, gods and goddesses, and the Jews state were supposed to stay away from all of that. But when you read through your Old Testament story, you find that they don't. They embrace all kinds of pagan gods and goddesses, and the altars, and the statues, and the totem poles, and the rest of it that, that went with it. Would they still consider themselves Jews, though, after yeah. they did that? Yeah, sure, because people call themselves whatever they want. But if you ask God, what is left of your people when they have turned to pagan gods and goddesses, I think God would say, well, not much. Right? Because yes. it's all supposed to begin with their relationship with God. They weren't supposed to have any idols. And of course, it's easy for us to get lost in thinking or, or begin to think, well, they had all those pagan idols to Asherah and Baal and all the rest of it. Well, we don't have that now. But you see, they had the kind of idols that we have now. Mars, the god of war. Mammon, the god of wealth and greed. Aphrodite, the goddess of erotic love and lust. So these ancient people were plagued by the kind of idolatries that we wrestle with. Um, 
and and I and idolatry is when you find yourself devoting the center of your being to someone or something other than God. We did a series on this once a long time ago. I think we called it, gosh, there was a show once about, oh, still around, American Idol, right? So it was called American Idol. And so we looked at different idols and one of the idols we looked at was family. Could you, could you build your whole sense of being around your family and sort of move God to the side of it? Sure you can. Money. Sure you can. Children. Sure you can. It's not even healthy for... I've raised three sons. It's not healthy to put your children at the center of everything that happens in your household and life. They get, they get wrong ideas about who they really are in this world and how to live in this world and what God hopes for them and from them. So even today, of course, and I think the biggest idol in our culture today is the self. That's just so much about the self, about myself and my importance is myself and the elevation of myself and the self and the rest of it. And I think it just doesn't leave any room at all for God and loses all sense of scale between ourselves as God's creatures and God. So idolatry isn't a problem only for these ancient people. John Calvin once said we are idle, I-D-O-L, idle factories. We just make them, make them, make them. And N.T. Wright once said very intelligently, as he often does, idols are about what you worship, and you become what you worship. Idolize money, you'll become greedy. Idolize sex, you'll become lustful. So. Celebrity. Celebrity, yeah, that's another one. Wow. So many parts of I mean, really, I don't need to hear one more word in my life about Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. Please just go away. I thought you were going to say um, Kim Kardashian. I don't need to hear one more word about Kim Kardashian. I don't care about Ben Affleck, and but Jennifer Lopez. I mean, they. I just don't... Lead quiet lives, please, people, and leave me alone. All right, enough of that. <laughs> Verse 7. You have made, so he's still pointing the accusing finger at these leaders. You have made your bed on a high and lofty hill. There you went up to offer your sacrifices to whom? To these pagan gods and goddesses. It would be a, it would be on a high hill. Why a high hill? Because they would typically build temples and altars on the highest places. Why? Because they're closer to God. That's the whole thing about why the pyramids are big. That's why the, the ziggurats that the Babylonians built were big. That's why the temple in Jerusalem was in the, was in the high spot. Because the higher you go, the closer you get to God. Verse 7, You have made your bed on a high and lofty hill. There you went up to offer your sacrifices. 
behind your doors and your doorposts. You have put your pagan symbols. Forsaking me, you have pulled back the covers on your bed, climbed into it, and opened it wide for every stinking pagan god and goddess that comes along. You made a pact with those whose beds you love, and you look with lust on their naked bodies. And verse 9 is the wow, the you went to Molech. Molech is probably the most awful of all of the Canaanite gods. Molech is the god to whom people did offer a human sacrifice. It's debated about the Jews. Some would say yes, I have sources that say no. There's a story in the Old Testament that kind of says yes, but Molech was the worst. So to be, to be accused, if you're Jewish, to be accused of going to Molech, oh, and it's usually, this is a funny spelling. Usually it's M-O-L-E-C-H. You went to Molech with olive oil and oh, got yourself all per perfumed up to make yourself attractive to this, to this beast of a pagan god whose mouth drips with blood and whatever awful things you want to imagine. You sent your ambassadors far away. You descended to the very realm of the dead. Yes, you wearied yourself by such going about, but you would not say it's hopeless. You found the renewal of your strength, and so you did not faint. Whom have you so dreaded and feared that you have not been true to me, and have neither remembered me or taken this to heart? Is it not because I have long been silent that you do not fear me? <laughs> I will expose your righteousness, lack of it, and your works, and they're not going to benefit you. When you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. Call on old Molech when you need saving. You might have convinced yourself that you're a whole lot better off with Molech. Just call on him when you really need saving, right? The wind will carry all of them off. A mere breath will blow them away. But whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. So what is that whole passage about? That whole passage is a word. It's that proverbial two by four up to the head of the leaders of Israel saying, look, you keep chasing after all, after these pagan goddesses and goddesses trying to what? Find security, find yourself, find, I'll put it in today's terms, find fulfillment and satisfaction. You're going to be self-realized if you can only find the right pagan god and goddess to lead you. No, there is no one but me, God says. And if you will just give all that up, just 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 push it aside. Give up the Asherah poles, the, 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 the totem poles, and the altars to Bolek, and the sacrifices to Baal, and all the... Just give it all up. And come to me, God says, because in me you can find refuge. And me you can. And me you will inherit the land.
in me you will find your dreams realized but you're not going to do it anywhere else anywhere else Scott, the, uh -huh. at the end of verse 10, the part B of 10, you have found renewal of your strength, and so you did not faint. This is your uh, renewal of your strength through these idols? Yeah, I think so. Of I, course. I, okay. I, I think it's just admitting the truth that what? That we can, we can find lots of ways to be, to feel renewed. To, but in the end, they fail us. Well, because it wouldn't be really true at all, right? Well, anyway, I mean, so. it's kind of like, you know, it's like a person who decides, you know, I'm, I'm really getting kind of weak and weak and tired, so I'm going to start taking these, what? These amphetamines or something, right? And so they do help for a while, but they're not, they're, they're not the right path forward. But it's, uh, to me, I've, I think that's what that is. Um, but good question, Patty. I know, because there is a Bible verse about, right, renewing your strength in the Lord. You'll be strong and not faint. I can't sure. remember what verse that is, but um, it's so similar to that. And it's there, talking about having your strength in, in the Lord, not in... Right, because there's, there's what, counterfeit strengths. Yes. Right? some sort of magic potions that's supposed to put you right or something like that. All right. So now in the final part of Isaiah 57, God is going to speak to people who are repentant. Or to use the old word, contrite. Contrite means to repent. To be remorseful. So verse 14. And it will be said, quote, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. Quote, God's word. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. It's a call for us to come to God in repentance. Just because you screw up does not mean you're not, you have to turn away from God. God wants you to come. Just, just be repentant. Be remorseful. Recognize what you, what you did. God is a God of mercy and grace and forgiveness. I live in a high and lowly place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit because of what they've done to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite, the, uh, the remorseful. I won't accuse them anymore, nor will I always be angry, for then they would faint away because of me. The very people I have created. God doesn't want to scare anybody away. I was enraged by their sinful greed. I did punish them and hid my face in anger. Yet they kept on in their willful ways. I have seen their ways. <gasps> but I will heal them. I will guide them. I will restore comfort to Israel's mourners creating praise on their lips, 
Peace, peace to those far and near, says Yahweh, and I will heal them. So go back to the Babylonian, Babylonian exile. They, they were sent to Babylonia. They were sent to jail because of their faithlessness. And they understood that their exile was God's punishment. It was God's anger with them being, being lived out. But there's always the but, right? The B-U-T. Always. Okay. But I will heal them. I will guide them. I will comfort them. I will create praise on their lips. Peace, peace to those near and far, says Yahweh, and I will heal them. It is, it's, it's like happens so often in the prophets. It acknowledges the problems that the people have had living in God's ways, but then reminds them that God is gracious, gracious and forgiving. God is relentless in his pursuit of them. And God will heal them. My favorite one, I've told you a hundred times, is in Hosea chapter 2. When God says, I'm going to remove the name Baal, the, prof, the pagan god from their lips. And we're going to go out, we're going to go out in the wilderness. And we're just going to start over. We're going to forget all this stuff. We're just going to start over. And I will allure her. I will win her back. I will win my people back. I will love her as if it was that first love. Those, those, those days of the first romance will start over. I will be your husband and she will be my bride. These are the clues to God's character. The clues to God's character are not in the beginning of verse. Um, they are not found in verse 17. The clues to God's character, the surprising part of God's character, is in verse 18. I have seen their ways. <laughs> I know who I'm dealing with. But I will heal them, and I will guide them. And I will bring comfort to Israel's mourners, creating praise on their lips. See, God doesn't do it. He, it God's not blind. God's not blind to who we are and the mistakes we make and the poor choices we make. But God loves them. God loves us. I will heal them. I will guide them. So then you come to verse 20. Because just as there are some who are contrite, remorseful, and repentant, there are others who will not repent. That's who we're talking about here. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Right? There is no peace for the wicked. So, does God ignore wickedness? No. God wants us to come to God with a repentant heart when we know that we have um, failed to love God and to love others as we should. I don't find that to be a surprising idea. Um, it's, it's 
why why do I not find that to be surprising? Because that's the nature of a relationship, right? A a, a relationship is one where you where you come in and and you sit down and you bear your soul and you talk about oh, I really screwed up. I really screwed up. And I'm sorry. And then your mom or dad says, okay, all right. I'm glad you told me. Let's move on. That's the picture that comes to my mind in these passages. You know, uh, Richard Foster, who wrote the great book on prayer, said it, it's kind of like, prayer is kind of like going down and sitting in your grandfather's room, and he's got a rocking chair you can sit in, and you sort of bury your soul, and you all talk, and, and you sort Yep, I think that's I think that's kind of it, and there. But there are people who won't repent. There are people who I am convinced will shake their fist at God all the way to the end, whenever, wherever, whoever that end is. They will shake their fist at God. They will just be convinced that they know better, and it will be it will be sad for them. So, anyway. So I think that's what we're going to do today, um, which I guess is good. What time is it? Yeah, see? <laughs> so, Annie, you, Patty, do you have anything else today? No, but I, I feel, I, you know, I couldn't remember the verse that, that it was so similar to. Uh -huh. And here it was just right back in Isaiah, a couple of chapters back in Isaiah 40. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. Right. Which is... Because they've relied upon God. Yes. Whereas this pagan counterfeit yes. stuff it's, goes away. So I'm, I'm, I'll look at that verse a little bit more. I've got two weeks to do that. You do? <laughs> and see if I can find anything else about that. Because... But it, it has to be that because it's embedded in the midst of yes. this yeah. section on on the pagan gods and goddesses and the idolatry who, you know, it's... Things that are bad for you can bring you temporary relief, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, or you wouldn't do them at all. Right. You do the bad things because they bring you yeah. some measure of relief and renewal, not realizing that they're tearing your life apart even as you're doing it. Okay, wow, that was profound, huh? So let me move this around to and pull in. There's Patty. She's actually sitting next to me here. <laughs> Just now. That's right. Just now, yes. yes. All righty. So, guys, girls, we'll miss okay. you over the next couple weeks. But we will be here, of course, on Sunday. Yes. We'll, we'll be at class tomorrow. Yes, and then I'm gone. We'll be gone on August 8th. Yeah, what's that Sunday? Must be the fourteenth. Yes, yes, it is. And the we'll 14th. be gone. We'll be gone Sunday, August fourteenth. But then we'll be back, and we'll have class on the twenty second here. Right. That Monday, the twenty second, we'll be back to pick up an Isaiah fifty eight. That's right. And I'm going to do a little shameless plug for that Second Act Ministry. I went online to on Realm just a little while ago, and I signed Scott and I up on. August 21st, down in Piro Hall at 12 noon, there is going to be this delicious meat, uh, Mexican fiesta lunch thing. It is 100% free. You're not being asked to volunteer that day for anything. or it, It's just, just a day, and this was Robert's dream, of us having this, um, this ministry for the nearly, newly, 
or have been retired for a long time, folks. Or semi-retired. Semi-retired, or whatever. exactly. Um, you may still be working full-time like Scott is, and um, but be at that retirement age. Anyway, please sign up on Realm. I don't want you to be disappointed in a few weeks when it's all filled up. Sold out. Yeah. It will, because it will on August 14th. It is actually going to be sold out because it doesn't cost It's free. It be, it's free, but there won't be any, There won't be any slots left. There won't be, yes. You know, it's going to be down in Piro Hall, and uh, we just want as many people that really want to come, just go to Realm, sign up, do it. I promise you won't be disappointed. It will be, it'll be a fun day. It'll be a fun day. And we're... You're going to be there, so we know it's going to be right. fun. Right. Right? Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. Robert knew all about this, of course, <laughs> this lunch and everything. The only sad part is that Robert won't be there with yes. us that day. But we we truly want to carry on um, very much in the same, just the same way Robert would have moved along right. in this ministry with us. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. And we thank you, God, for this group. We thank you, God, for this time to be set aside every week to come together and and just go over your word, Lord, in depth, in a way that it makes sense to us, and in a way that we can use it in our lives, even today, many, many years um, since Isaiah was written, thousands of years. And we're, we're so grateful, Lord. We're so grateful for that opportunity. We pray, Lord, that you'll be with us this week, that we will seek your presence, and we will find it. We pray you'd keep us healthy, Lord, and we pray for your wisdom and your discernment, God, every day in everything that we do. We lift up all these prayers today. We pray them all in the name of your son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Adios, everybody. See you Sunday. See, see you Sunday. Or some of you tomorrow. Yes. Noon. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. -bye. <laughs> Bye.